right, guys, welcome to RUF. It's good to see you. If this is your first time, uh, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we're one of the many campus ministries here at Wofford, walking alongside you to help you grow in your faith. Um, my name is Matt. I'm the campus minister with RUF at Wofford. Caroline is our intern right here in the front. We would love to meet with you at some point this semester if we haven't. Um, met some of you guys for the first time this semester, which has been great. We're continuing a series in the book of Genesis. We're not doing the whole book that's 50 chapters and would be overwhelming. We're doing the first 11 chapters. What we need to know and why we're looking at Genesis, because the Bible, even though we have Old and New Testaments, it's one overarching story. It's a meta-narrative about God restoring all things, making all things new through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Genesis is the pilot episode. Genesis is season one, episode one. And so we're going to continue that. We're seeing that the Bible has the first words that God speaks, the first words that he speaks about himself, about sin and salvation, about creation, about work, that's tonight, and about rest, and then that's next week. And so we're going to look at the first word on work tonight. Uh, I was talking with a friend today, and he gave me some numbers about work. And he said, um, this is my friend Jordan, at uh, RUF campus minister at uh, UT Austin, and some of you know him. He spoke at our retreat a couple years ago. Right before COVID, y'all, that was crazy. That was the last, like, normal thing we did before y'all, like, we all got sent home. Kind of crazy. Jordan says this about work. If you work 40 years from the age 22 to 62, that's approximately 96,000 hours working your job. 96,000, okay? It's one-third of your life. And uh, by comparison, if you attend church every week between 22 and 62, that's 2,300 hours sitting in a pew or whatever they have you sitting in. And so whatever you end up doing after college That is the primary way that you're spending your time, and therefore your Christian life primarily has the shape of your work, not your prayer life. The majority of the ways that you follow Jesus is not church attendance, it's your vocation. And y'all are here during these formative years of college to figure out who you're going to be after, and you're becoming a kind of person that's going to inform the kind of husband and wife and lawyer and doctor and mom and dad that you're going to be after you leave here. And so vocation and work is like everything for y'all. And it should be everything for y'all because it's the majority of how we spend our time. But work is a complicated subject. Because of the complicated stories we hear about work, I'm going to name a couple stories that might be familiar to you. They might be familiar in that you've heard them or you've felt them like existentially. Number one would be work as identity. Work as identity. This is Dwight Schrute at Dunder Mifflin, okay? Why is he so obsessed with his title as assistant regional manager? Because work is everything for Dwight. It's his identity. This is why when two adults are at a cocktail party and the first thing that they ask each other after they introduce themselves is what? What do you do? Because what you do, your job and your vocation is the way that you signal to everyone that you matter. Work as identity. That's one. The second one would would be what I would just say, work as fulfillment. Work as fulfillment. This would be like Mad Men and all the advertisers that are in Mad Men. So work as fulfillment is like work is to save me and save me like on my insides and my soul and my spirit and forgive me and my sins. It's to do everything for me. It is, it's like, 
it, it, I should get out of, out, of, out of bed in the morning thinking of how compelling my work is, fulfillment. If I could just find that job that makes me come alive, okay? So it's very adventurous. Now, the last one would be just work about money. This would be like a materialist view of vocation, a materialist view. This, this story says, like, don't be so idealistic, like as long, like work is a means to an end. This would be the story of succession on HBO Go if you're watching that show. That's like, it doesn't really matter what you do according to that family in succession as long as you get rich and stay rich. So it's a means to an end, a materialist view, like gather resources, gather cash and money and get a good retirement plan. Just gather and gather and gather so you can have security and status and wealth. Okay, so identity, fulfillment, or it's just supposed to get you like really secure. There's all kinds of stories. The Bible tells a story about work as well. Hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible, the instance of God speaking about work, it's all over the Bible. And we see that in Genesis, the first word on work, because God is the first worker. That's what we saw. He's the first artist who makes man in his own image, and that's why we work, and that's why we're artistic, because we're made in his image. Of course we work. And that's why during y'all's summer breaks and Christmas breaks, some of y'all will FaceTime me and text me and call me and be like, Matt, I'm so bored. This internship is so mundane. I need routine and rhythm. Why? Because you're made for this rhythm that's called like a nine to five. Like your body and your mind and your, like you are called to live that way because you're made in the image of a God who works. So that's what we're going to see. And we're going to see three things about work. And you can see this printed out. Work is from God. Work is with God and work is for the world. With God or from God, with God, for the world. Let's do the first one, okay? From God. Work is from God. God is the first worker in the Bible. That's the first time we see work. He created the world by working, and then he gives us work to do. That's the rhythm. He works first, image of God, creates men and women, and he says, tend the garden. Get to work. I love my creation. Take care of it. In verse 15, we read, and Claire read this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Remember that there's so much that's happened before we even get here. Before he says get to work, he has been working. He's been doing all kinds of things. Work is from God. He's been at work previously in the world. And so when he gives men and women work to do, he's saying, I want you to continue in my work. I want you to continue in the work that I've been doing beforehand and the work that I'm going to keep doing when you get your hands dirty in my world. He's saying, this is not something that you manufacture on your own. I'm giving you this work to do. They didn't create this work. This job description, they didn't curate this. God gave it to them. He gave them a vocation. Work is a gift. Work is given to us by God. It's from God, not something that we manage. Now, I, I want to say this. Some of you all know that my wife, Ivy, is a, a PA, a physician assistant. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about um, her as a PA several times in this sermon. And I want you to know this, like, Ivy has done surgery jobs and she works at a vein clinic now. Ivy's work as a PA is just as holy and just as given to her by God as my work is as a pastor. Okay? It's just as she is on just as holy ground 
today helping folks in the vein clinic as I am with the scriptures open now. So we have to see that, that all of the, the work that God has given us, whether you're on the way to seminary or not, is from God. It is from God. Mike Williams says this, and this is in your, your handout. I love this. The holiness of our work given to us by God. The call to be servants of God, to carry his image into the world, is to order our lives and our hearts. When we find that role, relationship, use of our gifts and talents that seem to make sense of our lives and give us purpose and joy, we're tempted to say, I was made for this. I was made for this. It doesn't mean that it's not mundane. We're going to get to that. But it is just to say, like, God has made me to, like, get in the world and get dirty in God's world and, like, spread his glory as far as you can see. That's what you were made to do. It's a gift. Irenaeus, a church father, I love this quote. It's not there in the handout, but here it is. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. Where? Nine to five. It's not just like in the prayer closet and at corporate worship in large group. Give me a break. Like y'all are here an hour a week. RUF like is such a small fraction of your life. Hopefully that frames classroom, dorm room, kitchen, coffee shop, right? That's where you are. So the way that you manage your time now, your reading, your lab assignments, your thesis presentations, the way that you treat your roommates, the way that you call your parents, your interactions with professors in your classes and baristas at, the, at Acorn and Terrier Grounds and people at Burwell that work there, like this is where, this is your calling and vocation. Like your, like your job these four years is being a college student and it's a gift from God and it's just as holy as any like clergy work that any of us are doing. It's, it's really holy ground that you're on. God has called you here. So it's from God. It's also with God. Now, here's a specific term that I want you all to hear, and it's key for us to understand what it means to work with God, participation. Our work is participating with God's previous work and his ongoing work in the world. It's not our work. I always say this, God is always the subject of the verb. In the biblical story, in the redemption of the world, and his making you new in the, from the inside out, he is always the subject of the verb, participation. Our work in the world is participating in God's ongoing work. And so when he creates Adam and Eve, he calls them, he gives them work to do, but he's been at work, remember? Night and day, sun and moon, galaxies and stars, flesh and bone, all of it. He's been at work, and then he says, I've, I've made all of it. Keep it going. Keep it going. Spread it out. I want Eden to go out. And that is why when he calls Abraham in Genesis 12 and tells Israel as his covenant people to be a blessing to all nations, that's not a new commandment. That's Eden. That's Genesis 1 and 2. He's saying like Genesis 3, we're going to get there in two weeks. When sin comes in and distorts all of creation, that original calling was distorted as well. Instead of advancing God's kingdom and his goodness in the world and extending Eden out, we want to bring Eden in on ourselves. Rather than loving God and neighbor, we want to bring Eden in on ourselves. And so and God, with his gracious initiative, with his covenant people, Israel's like, no, 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 we're going back to Eden. We're going back to Genesis 1. I'm not done, and I'm not going to forsake my creation. And I've always wanted my people to embody and extend my goodness 
as far as the eye can see, Abraham, Moses, Daniel, David, G- like this is what he's always been about, is the redemption of all things because he loves his world. So he's been at work. We just participate in that work. That's what the body of Christ has always been about. So right now, again, I want you to see your work as a college student. I want you to have Eden images in your mind. I want you to think of this corner of the world and of Spartanburg as like your area of the garden. And that you're participating in this agricultural gardening redemption work of all things with Jesus who calls himself the vine and calls you the branches and says that as you work with him in his vineyards, your fruit of his spirit is going to spread out and keep spreading and keep spreading until we are fully with him, feasting with him in the marriage supper of the lamb, which will actually feel a lot like Eden. So I want you to see too that it's not just like participating with God. What if, what if you had vocabulary and categories for God's presence with you, participating with you, walking with you at large group and Millican? At corporate worship on Sundays, at a small group, and Burwell. And I want you to see that God... What if you had categories just to say and even inform the way that you're praying, like, Lord, you're walking with me right here. Like, you're with me. You want, me, you want to change me in this. You want, you want to change me in the inside out how I'm stewarding my gifts in this season. So not just participating in his work, but he's at work in you and with you. He's working with you. So the last thing is for the world not just with God participating with him, but it's also work that's done for the world. It's always been that way. So God calls Adam and Eve to tend, keep the garden that his goodness and glory would spread as far as wide as creation is. Sin enters the picture. Two weeks, we're going to unpack what that means. But in short, it distorts and twists every corner of creation and every corner of your person. Nothing is untouched by sin. But God loves his world, and he's not refused to give up on his world and give up on his people to extend his goodness in the world. And now we see that our work is not about us. That Wofford College isn't about you. It's actually, you know, if you've tried like Wofford College life being primarily about you, how miserable that is. Like narcissism on the one hand is so easy to like navel gaze and just be about you and your own kingdom. It's also so miserable if you do it long enough. Hopefully you'll just cry, uncle. You're like called to live a life that is not about you, that is for others. Work in the kingdom is for the world, is for others. So it's not about you. It's how can not I build my resume, but bless others. How can I be a blessing with my gifts instead of leverage them to like social climb or do upward mobility stuff to resume build? What if it's about other people? What it's about how to use and steward my gifts for the extension of God's goodness in Spartanburg and in Charleston and in Greenville, wherever you're going after this. It changes why we work. My friend Jordan said it this way, um, work is not about us. So when you think about your career, you don't have to ask. I would actually add, you can actually be freed from asking, how do I get rich or how do I find a job that sounds interesting 
at social cocktail parties or whatever, but instead, how do I bless others? That's just a very different question. It's a very different question. I would actually say that question can inform not just what you study and what you do post-grad, but even like how you spend your time now. I'll give you an example because this matters. Like think of your roommate, for example. If you have a roommate who's struggling and you have a roommate that just like verbally, verbally vomits on you all the time because they're just in the zone and they're just struggling, but you like your friendship to them is listening right now, okay? If you haven't had a friendship like this, you will. And, but it's a sacrificial friendship because oftentimes when they want to verbally vomit on you, it's like when you need to study or you need to sleep because they come in, maybe they've had too much to drink and they just need to like either literally vomit on you or they need to like verbally vomit on you and process how difficult life is because fallen, a fallen world actually sucks and you need to listen, but sleep is going to have to bend and studying is going to have to bend. If college is about you, studying wins in that moment. Sleep wins in that moment. If college is not about you, you stay up. Now, there's, you, know, don't, you don't have to like let them run over you and they do this for six months, but you get the point, right? You have boundaries are a real thing. And you're willing actually to be, to be flexible, for the sake of others, if college is about you. Okay, I want, so I want, as I hope, as I was walking through that, I hope that your like kingdom selflessness imagination was going when I was doing that. Because I know you have people like that in your life, okay? Um, your work, if it's for the world, it's actually your primary mission field. You don't need to go overseas to do it. The primary way that you bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ to say with your life that Jesus is alive and that sin and death really are defeated is right here, right now. It's at Burwell. It's at office hours with your, with your non-Christian professors. It's right now. Go overseas, of course, right? But it's here. God has called us to extend his glory and his goodness and embody his character, the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we listen, the way that we shut up when we should, the way that we should prophetically speak up when we should. Because we're being an image bearer of God, reflecting his character in the world. We're called to do that everywhere, not just overseas. It's your primary missionary calling is right here and right now. And it's for others. I had a friend um, that I worked with uh, his name is Drew. Before seminary, I worked at Clark's Shoe Store. Some of y'all know that. And it was a, my, one of my favorite jobs of all time. Worked at, um, I sold shoes, and it was all commission. And I had a friend, and his name was Drew. And Drew hired me, and he was the manager. And he was, he was about five years older than me. And um, Drew had, like, a really rough past. He had really good parents, but he just had a real prodigal son story came to know Jesus in college sometime and it was like very, very redemptive, but like rock bottom sort of story. But he had this way of working that was magnetic for people, no matter who they were, whether it was like he was selling shoes, like nobody's business, or it was like me seeing how selfless he was in the way that he spent his time and helped people like me who didn't know what they were doing when, when I came on with the job how empathetic he was when these customers would essentially treat him like a therapist and unload their life on him, how patient he was with his words, how slow he was to speak. 
he embodied the character of Jesus in very mundane ways at Clark's Shoe Store in Birmingham, Alabama. It's that mundane and it's that magnetic and beautiful. You can get on this, get in on this. Everybody can. You don't need to go to seminary to do this. Drew was, everyone was drawn to him because he worked for others. Work wasn't about Drew. That was the deal. And everyone felt it. Everyone saw it. Everyone heard it. Working for others is work in the kingdom. All right. From God, with God, for the world. That's the deal. That's work. Now, a lot of us have boundary issues with work. We're over-functioning. There's a busyness culture that I've heard of. That's like a thing at Wofford College. I've been here five years, and maybe that's a thing. Maybe I struggle with that. Maybe I don't. But <clears throat> so we're going to talk about rest next week. So we're not going to try to do everything, but I do want to, I, I want to like land the plane with application. There's so many things we could say about application with the topic of biblical view of work. I do just want to say three things for you to chew on when you leave. Um, but I do want you to be thinking about rest for next week because it's very important that we go there next. First thing, if we're to take this seriously, I want to invite you all to see the beauty in mundane, the beauty in the mundane realities of life. So Brother Lawrence was this monk who wrote this book called Practicing the Presence of God. I love this book, Practicing the Presence of God. It is like 50 pages. You could read it in one sitting. And Brother Lawrence was a monk, and if you know anything about monasteries, life in monasteries, they do two things. They work and they pray. They work and they pray. They work, they garden, they brew beer, they cook, they wash dishes. And Brother Lawrence, that was his job. He, uh, he washed dishes all the time. I don't know of anything else. And we were in St. Louis in seminary. We didn't have a dishwasher, and I was the master of dishwashing. And I can't think of anything more mundane more unseen, more like non-glamorous than like that is your primary job. And this was Brother Lawrence's job. And Brother Lawrence did this job so much that he actually began to see that there wasn't really much difference between his work and his prayer life. That God was just as present in dishwashing and praying five times a day like they did. And this is what he says. The time of business, that's what the work hours, washing dishes for him. The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and the clatter of the kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were on my knees receiving the Lord's Supper. God is present with you in the mundane. So again, Large group, Milliken. He's just as present. I want you to have the categories for God's spirit being alive and active and moving around in the mundane parts of your life, that you would actually have an alertness to where God might be at work to be able to say, Lord, you're with me. You are with me here. There's no corner of my life that you don't want to dwell with me. I'm not just participating. You're not just like using me as a ministry tool. You're trying to like walk with me because you're a shepherd. Because he loves you. That's why he's walking with you. So, but you have to have biblical categories for the mundane is now beautiful. If there's no off-limits parts of your life, then everything is beautiful now. Even the most mundane parts, okay? The second thing I want to say, not just beauty in the mundane, is that Christian work is like a truly countercultural thing. Work in the kingdom is countercultural because it's for others and not yourself. 
it's not about you anymore. It's about others. It's about God and his glory and his goodness extending out, and it's not for yourself. One of my, my heroes is Wendell Berry. If you've been around RUF for very long, you have heard me either talk about him or quote him. It's like Eugene Peterson and Wendell Berry. It's like hand, you know, hand in hand for me. Wendell Berry uh, is a poet. He lives um, in Kentucky, and he's a farmer. He farms on his family farm that he inherited. He's 87 years old now. He was an English professor at the University of Kentucky, and his entire and he also was like a an agricultural activist. And his life's work, whether it was writing or protesting on the streets, it's always been about faithful stewardship of God's world. Always. And and he is a Christian. He's a he's a he's a unashamed Christian. And it's always been about taking care of of land and the people that live in the land. That's Wendell Berry's life work. Here's what's fascinating about this. So in other words, it's a life that's for others. It's a vocation that is for others. And any time that Wendell Berry, either if, whether it's in his poetry or his essays or when, with, a, with a protesting sign on the streets, I've seen old pictures with him standing up with signs in New York and in California. It's when Wendell Berry sees that people have gotten so greedy economically and they've gotten to elevate money over people, and people and institutions become dehumanized at the expense of profit, he speaks up against it. His life's work is for the stewardship of God's world because God loves it, and the care for God's people because God loves the world and he loves the people that are in it. And here's what's fascinating why I bring this up. Like my friend Drew, it doesn't matter. Like the New Yorker in their, their lot two weeks ago, the New Yorker, which is not known for its like Christian literature, is they did a Wendell Berry profile. Uh, you can read it. It's amazing. Two weeks ago, it was a profile about Wendell Berry. Probably there are like dozen, like they've done a dozen profiles on Wendell Berry. Why? Because his work is for others and the New Yorker can't look away. The Atlantic can't take their eyes off Wendell Berry. CNN and Fox News can't take, everyone has written about Wendell Berry. And his, the ripple effects of his life is rooted in the fact that he's living a life for others. And they like spit out the bones with his Christian theology because he like shows his cards a lot in his writing. If they're not Christian, but it's a beautiful life because it's for others. Okay. But it's countercultural and people will think you're really weird. So gear up. Okay. Last thing. Work is a terrible savior. Uh, work is really good. It's holy. You're on holy ground. Uh, work cannot forgive you of your sin. Work cannot meet you existentially and spiritually in your insides. Work cannot satisfy you like Jesus. It is really, really good. I hope you feel empowered to like get after it now, like in the kingdom. And if you really give yourself over to your work, you will experience, and many of you have, that work is a terrible savior. And you will get so burned out so quickly. And I hope you learn that now when, instead when you're 33. <clears throat> so some good diagnostic questions for us in terms of just like, okay, how do I have some self-awareness? And we're going to continue this next week. But how can I have some self-awareness spiritually on how I'm relating to work? Because it's just a complicated thing, isn't it? Our relationship to work. Here are some diagnostic questions just for us to ask. Like, am I working too much? 
Am I over-functioning and overworking? Am I saying that I'm always busy because that's what people say at Wofford all the time and you like sort like to social signal to everyone that like you're okay at Wofford College, you just say that? Or are you like really at like, is it too much? Or like, are you two weeks away from burning out? I just think it's a good question to ask. Like, are you working too much? And if you are, why? It's just a helpful question. I'm not here to shame you or diagnose that, diagnose, or diagnose that, but it is a good question for you to bring Jesus, and it's a body of Christ question to say, hey, I need people who know me and that trust me and that I can be honest with to say, man, can you help me not over-function, over-work this week? Because everything in me wants to. Okay, are you working too much? If we're neglecting parts of our physical health like sleep and exercise— because we have to like overwork and overfunction. That's just something to pay attention to, to bring to Jesus and to your friends. If our happiness and fullness is completely resting on a GPA and resume building, that's something to pay attention to. I'm talking about like if you are comp- if there's a pattern of you just being completely undone by not getting into that grad school program, why is your heart that invested? That's a good question. That sounds like a body of Christ, bring it to Jesus question. If your fullness and happiness is driving, being driven by how you're performing, that's a good question to ask. Okay. I think that um, I would also say this. The only way that you're going to be able to have an, an appropriate relationship to your work now and after is if you do it in community. You have to, you can't do this alone. And I think just being able to say, some of y'all don't like, this is probably, I know, much more rare here. Um, I've never met anyone at Wofford College. That's, I've never met a lazy person at Wofford College. Some of us just like need to be encouraged to like kind of work a little bit more. And we need the body of Christ to tell us that as well. It's not just like slow down, bro. You need to rest. And Sabbath is a real thing. That's for next week. We need community to say, hey, you need to manage your time better. You're really unorganized and people are affected by your actions. Or like you're all you're five to 10 minutes late for everything. And, you know, so like we need help on both ends to like work hard, manage time well, and also to like slow down and rest. So don't do it alone. That's what I'm trying to say. It's another plug for the local church and community in RUF if, if you would like that. All right, that's all the application. I do want to end but I want you to gear up for what I'm about to read. I'm going to read something, okay? I love what I'm about to read, so if you love me, you will listen. <laughs> okay. James K. Smith is a professor at Calvin College, and he wrote this essay. If you're interested, I could send it to you. It's just called Redemption, and it's a five-page essay on how salvation is really mundane. It's what we're talking about. How God is at work restoring all things in the most mundane corners of your life. And this is what he says, okay? Consider this just like a summary in his words. It's just way better than anything that I could say. But what does redemption look like? For the most part, you'll know it when you see it because it looks like flourishing. It looks like a life well-lived. It looks like the way things are supposed to be. It looks like a well-cultivated orchard laden with fruit, produced by ancient roots. It looks like labor that builds the soil and, bo- and brings delight. It looks like an aged husband and wife laughing with their great-grandchildren. It looks like the graduate student hunched over a microscope, 
exploring nooks and crannies of God's micro-creation, looking for ways to undo, undo the curse of the fall. It looks like abundance for everybody. Redemption sounds like the surprising cadences of a Bach concerto whose rhythm seems to expand even the soul. It sounds like an office that hums with senses of harmony and mission, punctuated by collaborative laughter. It sounds like the grunts and cries of a tennis player whose blistering serve and liquid forehand are enactments of things we never thought the body could do. It sounds like the questions of a third grader whose teacher loves her enough to elicit and make room for sanctified curiosity about God's good world. It even sounds like the spirited arguments of a young couple who are discerning just what it means for their marriage to be friendship that pictures the community that God desires. Redemption tastes like eating your broccoli just because your mom loves you enough to force you to eat your vegetables. But for the most part, spirit-empowered redemption looks like what Raymond Carver calls a small good thing. It looks like our everyday work done well, out of love, in resonance with God's desire for his creation. It looks like doing our homework, making the kids lunches for school, building the quality and craftsmanship's devotion and crafting a municipal budget that discerns what really matters in the community and contributes for the common good. It's an open seat on the bus at all times for everyone, but it's also getting to know my neighbors who differ from me, who don't believe what I believe. It's nothing short of trying to change the world, but it starts in our homes, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, and our schools. And it shouldn't surprise us that redemption will not always look triumphant. If Jesus comes as the second Adam who models redemptive culture making, then in our broken world, such cultural labor will look just like Jesus. But it also will look and smell and taste and sound like hope that is hungry for joy and delight. The second Adam, did you catch that? I can't believe I've gotten this far into the semester and haven't reminded you as we've been talking about Adam and Eve and the second Adam. Christ is called the second Adam to show us how to do this. And he's still at work. Homes, churches, neighborhoods, schools. Here. Now, you, me. Let's do it. Let me pray.